0: So thanks for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined today by Peter Maltin, who will be reading from and talking about his book, Eternal Graffiti, nominated for a Penn Hemingway. And Peter, first, congratulations on the nomination. And thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to do this.
0: It's my pleasure. And we'll dive in. So can you tell okay. us a bit about Eternal Graffiti, please?
1: Well, it's a it's. Kind of an epic in a way, although I don't want to scare people away by using that word to think of Michener or something, but it's you know it, it spans ten years in the life of Owen Kilroy, who starts out as a seventeen year old and uh it it basically completes his story when he's about twenty eight or something and it's essentially a coming of age story, but it's also sort of a thematic exploration, if you will, into grief and choices and you know, all the, all the things that we all sort of deal with at various times in our lives. And In this particular time for him, it's, it's all finding out, you know, who he is and where is his place in the world, you know.
0: Mm, that sounds like a really poignant opening and a great place to ask you for a reading, please.
1: Okay. Um, thank you. There's a lot of female characters in, in the book, and this is, comes early on. Uh, Owen Kilroy is the protagonist's name. And this reading takes place. He's in jail. He's just been beat up by the police and busted for lots of drugs. And uh, it's just it's a a night in jail. Every time I close my eyes, I'd see my Sarah. Maybe it was the loneliness and isolation I felt that finally broke down the barriers between my memories of her and my determined efforts not to let them in. It had been four months. She was one year behind Shooky and me in school. She was cute and small, maybe 5'3", 5'4", and bare feet most of the time. Each toenail painted a different color. Her eyes were that stunning color of blue you see in pictures of coral reefs. The first time I saw her eyes, really saw them, not just when she walked by. I couldn't speak. It was like I'd had a stroke. She was coming out of detention as I was going in, having just called my math teacher a fascist. We were two feet apart. We looked right at each other. I froze. She was annoyed but didn't say anything. I stepped aside and off she went. When I walked into the room, Ribs, the emaciated teacher's assistant whose job it was to lord over us, looked up at me, studied my face with an uncharacteristic interest and said, looks like you just met Sarah. Her hair was very long, blonde sometimes, sometimes red, blue or black. And she dressed like the freakiest of freaks. Catholic school girl with rainbow hair one day fairy godmother the next, cowgirl in cowboy boots on still another, then Janis Joplin, then Blanche Dubois, then Elvira. Her notoriety was unmatched. She had a captivating smile that appeared often enough, which emphasized a bit of an acne problem on her cheeks. Not long after she'd paralyzed me, we became good friends. I still remember so well how I believe she knew what a fraud I thought I was, what a phony loser. I was convinced she could see through me, detect. Or at least intuit all of my insecurities what a crappy guitar player i secretly thought i was my belief that i would never amount to anything that i was worthless ugly stupid and that now and in the end i was and always would be alone i told her all of this late one night on a camping trip when she and i were the only ones still awake everybody else had collapsed we sat together under one cozy sleeping bag my arm around her to keep her warm she held my other hand We were like two cats wrapped up in each other. Our faces were almost touching. We were being very quiet, which added to the intimacy. I could have kissed her, but I didn't. I felt a deep, abiding, sublime sense of peace with her, and I didn't want to do anything to screw it up. I haven't seen any sign of your insecurities. You really hide them well, she said. Thanks. They're there like broken glass at the bottom of a river. What about you? You seem like you don't have any, but you must, right? She laughed quietly looked at the sky and said, you know, right, that the light from those stars took tens of millions of years, maybe hundreds of millions to get here, and a lot of them by now are already dead? Yeah. I think I'm the light from one of those stars.
0: Oh, what a touching opening. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. So what inspired the book?
1: Well, it started with an image, really. I mean, some of this is about a third of the book Maybe a quarter of the book is plot-related autobiography, you know, and about the, the last two-thirds or three-quarters is just sort of, you know, fiction that happened as I was writing it. But the thing that actually inspired it came a long time ago. There was, I had this image of, of, a, of a fire, of a building on fire on top of a hill in Northern California. And it was the barracks of a, of a juvenile prison. And there's a kid down the hill looking up at the fire and he's just awestruck at it at the rightness of it and the justice of it because it's long overdue that something like that would be would be destroyed and so it's this really vivid image of of the fire at night and and his awareness that this fire was actually going to give him an opportunity to escape and so i wrote that down and i've had it for years and uh And, you know, every now and then I'd be, you know, how you look through your files for things to write. I'd come across it. I'd try to write a little bit. Wouldn't work. And then finally, one time, just a few years ago, I I, I was able to kind of connect to it. There's another part of it, too, because I had that, but I didn't have the character. And then the character, Owen, this is a very strange connection, okay? But um, I went to see this movie called Shame, S-H-A-M-E, not Shame, the cowboy movie, but Shame. It's directed by Steve McQueen, not the actor, but you know the director, Steve McQueen. And it it's just a really raw, raw, uncompromising movie with tremendous performances by Carrie Mulligan and um, Michael Fassbender. And I, I was, I, it was one of those movies where you come out of it and you could, you, I couldn't speak. And then finally, my friend and I went to this bar and we talked about it. And I think the connection there, I was thinking, well, why did? Because Owen was sort of born in a bar that night in a conversation with a friend of mine and I, I couldn't really figure out what it was. And then finally, I think it was the rawness and the honesty of that film that sort of gave me, um, it gave me uh, an insight into honesty and truthfulness that sort of, I, I, I don't know how else to put it. I was able to write this book because it opened up, my um willingness or, or or commitment to just have absolute honesty and truth in it to the extent that i'm capable of that and because i'd written two novels before that and they were just nonsense i mean the first book was kind of fun the the one i wrote in a hotel in the village but i think i i had a fear of honesty and truth because you know i i don't know why but my maybe it's because my personal truth and honesty are so raw and lots of bad mistakes and <laughs> so on and so forth but that's kind of those two things that image and the film shame and 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 the 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 power of truth and rawness and i mean i recommend that movie to anyone who's willing to sit through something that's really difficult to watch but it's also unbelievably human you know
0: i love that this was a story that you returned to and i think as writers, writer sometimes you know you you get an idea that you you have this idea and you want to write it right now, but sometimes it's not the right time for any number of reasons. And sometimes it could just be that we're not ready to write it. So I love that you came back to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think sometimes there's, there's a, you know, you get little hints from the universe, like, Hey, write this down. You know, you come back to it later. I mean, I've had so many ideas I put down where I thought they were great, but I wasn't, you know, didn't have time. And I come back and I'm like, why did I ever think that was good? <laughs> you know But yeah, there, it's, it's a fun thing to do to kind of you know harvest things from, from the past, and this one that, that image, that main image that I was telling you about, which has always stuck with me, and I knew sooner or later was something. I, I actually wrote a screenplay with it at one point. I didn't finish it, but I got about 50 pages into a screenplay, but that didn't quite hit it either. But yeah, so that actually did end up there. The burning building is in the book.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. great. Can yeah. we have another reading, please?
1: Yeah, a little bit of a background on this. This is uh, Owen and, and Kira. Kira is uh, the love of Owen's life. And she's an Irish woman, 19 years old, studying literature and film at UCLA. The, the, a lot of the book takes place in Venice Beach in California. And Owen is very uneducated you know, drug dealer, ex jail person, but they're madly in love with each other. And so she, she wants to take him to foreign films and sort of introduce him to that. The first film she took me to was at the Fox. You'll like this one, she said, with an alarming level of enthusiasm. It will please you and pave the way for other better movies to come. It was Roger Vadim's And God Created Woman, starring the 22-year-old Bridget Bardot nude in the opening scene, and a relentless lust inducer for the rest of the movie. Kira always made us stay until the lights went up, and while the end credits crawled, I said, wow, if this is what these movies are like, sweet love, I'm your popcorn. "Uh Uh-huh, see, I knew you'd like it. We're going to go see Rashomon next week. Who's naked in that one? She laughed. Sorry, baby, nobody. It's a classic Japanese movie about the vagaries of truth and perception. You'll see on Friday night. It sounds awful. It sounds awful now, but just wait. It's an amazing film. See, you're my Eliza Doolittle, honey. Follow my lead, and before long, we'll knock the Rockville Flats right out of you. That was the first moment when her Pygmalion project was actually out in the open, and I resented it. I don't have any Rockville Flats in me, Kira. I'm just not a movie snob. She put her hand on mine as if to soothe me. You're a Philistine, love, but it's not your fault. I am not. I read From Here to Eternity when I was in jail, and I loved it. That's 840 pages. What's the longest book you ever read? I don't know, but that's truly amazing, love. Nobody reads books like that anymore. When we got home, I had to secretly look up Philistine. We went to the movies all the time, and I slowly began to look forward to them. From one screening to the next, I began to realize that it wasn't all pretentious nonsense. Bergman, Truffaut, Romer, Vertmuller, De Sica, Fellini, Varda, Kurosawa, These were a few of Kira's spiritual guides, and they were to become mine. There were two reasons for my slow conversion. First, I didn't want her to be right about me being Owen Doolittle, so I resisted seeing any value in them for as long as I could. And second, I never trusted religion, and film was, for her, a religion. She believed in its power. She so wanted to open up the world for me through these films so we could share them, and eventually she succeeded. This may sound cheesy, Kira said one night, as we walked out of the new art, weepy-eyed after seeing The Cranes Are Flying, a moving, thought-provoking Soviet anti-war film from the 50s. It may sound Pollyanna or whatever, but I mean, think of it, Oh, The people who made this beautiful movie, the actors, the writer, the director, and so forth, they're supposed to be our sworn enemies. These are people we're supposed to want to murder in a nuclear holocaust. We're supposed to hate them. I'd like somebody to tell me how anyone could hate or even dislike Tatiana Semilova and try to explain to me how she could be anyone's enemy. She gave an unforgettable performance as Veronica, a young woman who is brokenhearted by the terrible losses she suffered in the war. It's so painfully ironic, Kira continued. These wicked, evil devils, these mortal enemies of ours, make a movie about the ghastly human cost of war. Their film is a gift to the world. To me, Films like this do more to bring people together than any pope ever did. Organized religion, especially Christianity, turns people, turns nations against each other. Look what's happening in Ireland right now. They say it's not a religious war, but you can't look at it without seeing Protestants on one side and Catholics on the other. And I agree with the Catholics, which is a first for me. Not that I ever agreed with the Protestants either. There should be one Ireland for all of us. The sad thing about the Cranes is, like, how many Americans have seen it in the last 15 years? Maybe a few hundred. And all of those people are in L.A., New York, or San Francisco. That's it. The rest of the country will never even know it exists. They'll never know the goodness of those people. And they'll go on thinking everybody in the Soviet Union is evil, inhumane, and wants to murder us too. And I, I should say that's a this is in, in, in the 70s with the troubles in Ireland, is what she was talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the book takes place. In New York and in also California. You said a lot of it takes place in Venice Beach. I'm curious about what makes those places the perfect place for the story and what did the settings make possible?
1: I think um, that's a good question because the places in this book, there's also uh, Ireland plays a very big part in it. And I think, you know, uh, places can be like a character, like another character, or like a, I, I think I, I tend to think of it as a container like venice beach for example the contrast between where owen starts out which is this backwater desert nothing town in the mojave desert and then venice beach with you know the ocean and you know the, the liveliness and for him you know the girls and the drugs and you know all that but venice especially at the time was so free and so open and you know it was kind of a beat up town in a way i, I don't know why people hadn't discovered now it's It's all, you know, tech people or whatever, nothing against tech people, but it doesn't have that bohemian quality that it used to, but it was just the perfect place for these young people to be able to get by on very little and have this beach. And there's so many scenes that happen on the beach in this book, really serious life changing moments for these characters that happen actually on this beach, New York City is is a change? At one point, kira decides she needs to get out of LA and go to New York, and and New York is you know I mean New York is New York is that that vitality and that 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 energy and that it's it's it maybe a more insular, more um, contemplative place in some ways because you're 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 not you don't have the vast expanse of nature. You're you know the narrow streets and the buildings and and also, friendships can be very, at least in my experience, friendships can be a little bit more uh, intense or, or closer in some ways in New York. So at least when I was there, we were all, you know, we're all in this together kind of thing. And in Ireland, I have to add, is more of this spiritual element of the book in the sense that it's where, it's where Kira's from. And there's a lot that goes on there that's really crucial for another sort of a tone or element to to the novel if that makes sense
0: it does and now of course i'm really curious and i think that's a great tone to ask for our final reading please
1: okay this is um this is a bit of a point of view it's not a point of view change but it's now in present tense because there's a shift in the book and this is owen speaking i drive over to rockville flats boulevard and park the car get out hop the fence and take the walk out to manderley I can still see Shooky there, waiting for me on that last day, raising his fist in victory. We spent thousands of hours here, and every one of them saved us from going crazy. On the edge of the ravine, I watch three hawks play in the wind. For a long time, I stand with my eyes closed, feeling the warm air embrace me, just as it had the night Sarah and I made love in this place. The wind blows like it wants to gently send the past on its way, while at the same time, the ghosts of Shooky and me smoke hash and dream of Venice. I put my hands flat on the spot where Sarah and I made love. Its gravity embraces me. I look way over to the other side of the ravine where Officer Lloyd chickened out of killing. There might as well be a headstone over there too, memorializing the death of my first life. In honor of Shooky and me, I light a second joint. Gazing out to the horizon out west, I let the magnificent view flow into me as if I'd never denied any of it. Shuki and I had wanted so badly to escape, and we were right. There had been nothing for us here. There was nothing left to feel or to know then. But I understand now that the pain I'd suffered was only a part of it. All the rest still belongs to me. Not everything need be lost in this life. It surprises me to remember that I'd spent much of my time in Rockville Flats laughing. And what did it matter that I was always high when I did? I put out the joint, leaving half of it unsmoked as a kind of offering to the gods. I don't pray to the gods often. I found them to be unreliable. But sometimes they come through. I say a silent prayer for Kira and Sarah and Shooky and me, and then include my mother and father. Those two might still be out there in the world somewhere, waking up every day, facing the struggle. Or perhaps theirs is finally over. I'll probably never know. I forgive them, ask that they be kept safe and say my last goodbye of the day. It sounds like at the end of the book, but
0: it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for reading to us. So where can we find the book?
1: Well, if you go on to the, uh, it's published by the story plant, S-T-O-R-Y-P-L-A-N-T. And if you look up the story plant and look at Eternal Graffiti, And I'll read these to you, but people can look up for themselves because it's probably too quickly. It's listed on the website. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Indigo, Kobe, IndieBound, and Book Depository. So it's out there, and it's um, being published on September 6th, so it's coming up.
0: Congratulations. I hope you have a wonderful book launch and thank, thank you, you so much for joining us and for reading and talking about the book. It's been such a treat. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Yvonne. It's been a really, it's been a great pleasure and it's been uh, it's been wonderful meeting you.
0: Oh, it's been wonderful meeting you as well.